Hello, and welcome to this oral odyssey into the unknown that we call Scry. I am your host, the Seer, and I will be your guide through the four true tales of spectral sightings and eerie encounters that are presented in this episode. But enough about me. You're here for the scares. So let's go ahead and dive into these spooky stories, shall we? We have all heard tales of recently deceased loved ones visiting relatives and friends at the time of death. But what happens when someone is compelled to remain among the living? Our first story comes from Moondancer and provides one possibility to that question. This is not my story, but my sister's. In late 1984, our dad was diagnosed with an aneurysm in the brain. His family doctor had been classmates during medical school with a guy who was now one of the more famous brain surgeons in the Midwest and arranged for dad to be examined by the friend. The brain surgeon was located in Cleveland. Dad lived in South Central Michigan. The outcome is the aneurysm is approximately the size of a ping pong ball and needs to be operated on right fucking now. And mom, my wife, and I take dad down to Cleveland. The surgery is long and difficult, and at some point during the procedure, the aneurysm bursts. They lose dad for about three and a half minutes, but manage to get him back and finish the surgery. Weird thing number one. During the long and difficult recovery, Dad asks Mom about when he had died. Mind you, no one had mentioned anything about it while within earshot. Not only that, the doctor was making his rounds at the time and asked him what he meant. Dad told him that he woke up, floating against the ceiling watching the surgical team trying to get him back. Clear. He repeated some of the actions taken and parts of the verbal interaction of the team during those frantic three and a half minutes. The doctor was astounded and told him and my mom that everything dad related was true and that there was absolutely no way he should have been able to remember any of that. As a result of the aneurysm bursting, Dad suffered a stroke effect and lost all use of his right side, never to be regained. A short backstory. Dad had been a farmer all his life, and other than a surgery to repair a hernia, he had been extremely healthy his entire life. He was 55 years old at this point, and was probably in better shape physically than me at the time. He had finished high school, but had no secondary education and did little reading other than farming magazines, so he would have had no knowledge of surgical techniques during brain surgery. Yet he knew what they had done while he was gone. 
Weird thing number two. There were some complications, and Dad ended up in the ICU for several weeks and in the hospital for six weeks after the surgery. As I mentioned earlier, he had been healthy and active for his entire life. Now for the kicker. My sister and her husband were house-sitting at Dad and Mom's house during this entire time, watching the dogs. My sister told us about a month after the surgery, while, coincidentally, Dad was having some really tough times during the recovery, that she woke up during the middle of the night, and Dad walked through the window and across the room to the bed. He stood at the foot of the bed, looked at my sister, and said, I'm tired. I don't think I can do this anymore. I just want to die. My sister says that she started crying and told him that we, the family, wouldn't know what to do without him, so he had to hold on. He looked at her with a sad look and said something to the effect that he'd hang on, but he wasn't happy about it. And he turned and walked back across the room and out through the wall. Again, coincidentally, the next day he rallied and began the long road to getting back to his life. It's a true story, at least as far as I know. My sister has never been inclined to believe in the supernatural, and in fact would be considered an agnostic or possibly even an atheist. For what it's worth, as the only daughter, she had a special place in my dad's heart, and I'm not surprised he would pick her to visit over my brother or myself. As the finish to this story, Dad managed to rehab to the point where he could work the farm equipment single-handedly, literally. Mom took to riding along as the extra hand when required. He retired from farming around 2000, still living on the same piece of property where he was born, until failing to recover from gallbladder surgery in December of 2012, passing just before Christmas. Mom couldn't live without him, and just gave up having any will to live. She passed in December of 2013, being buried one year to the day from Dad's death. My sister has never, so far as I'm aware, had any other supernatural experiences since then. Moondancer, that is an incredible story, and I can only pray that your father ultimately changed his mind and was happy to be alive. Thank you for sharing that personal encounter with us. Some events are so traumatic that they cause a scar on not only our psyche, but the ether that makes up our world around us. 
The stain of chattel slavery is easily one such event, and the sins of the past would reach out and make itself known to a couple of hunters. Shared by Accurate One, here is his experience. Here is my story. About 10 years ago, a friend of ours managed some historical property for the state of Tennessee. There is an old plantation mansion on this land. There are many stories about this house that include the owner killing his slaves by beating them. Another story is that his wife committed suicide by hanging herself from the front balcony. My friend has seen many shadows around this house. My brother and I had permission to hunt the farm around this historical property. We would usually just throw up our tents and sleep outside the old house. Never any problems. Our friend got permission from the state to upgrade the electrical system and add electricity to the old house. He told us we should just sleep inside the old house. No heat and water, just lights. The whole house had hardwood floors and no furniture. You could hear clearly if anything or anyone was in the house. I was 26 and my brother was 28. We were both good-sized guys and not afraid of much. I don't believe in ghosts or spirits or skinwalkers. I believe that there is a logical explanation for everything. I just haven't figured this out in 10 years. The first night, at around 2 a.m., we hear a chain clinking on the hardwood floor towards the back of the house in the kitchen area. We both get up, turn on our flashlights, and walk around to see what was waking us up. Nothing. We go back to sleep, and it happens again. This time, we both go outside to see if there was something outside the kitchen. Nothing. We go back to sleep and wake up the next morning, go hunting, and come back for lunch. At lunch, we sit in the front living room of the floor and eat. My brother leaves his Mountain Dew can on the floor. We go out and hunt that afternoon, come back, and find his Mountain Dew can across the hall sitting on the wall radiator. We cannot go into this room because of floor damage, so we have no clue how it got there. That night, nothing happened. The next morning, it was raining, so we waited until later to hunt. In the meantime, we explored the old house. We went down into the cellar, and that place 
was a bit spooky. My brother found an old can he was going to shoot with his bow for practice. He took it upstairs and placed it on top of his Coleman stove. We went hunting and stayed out all day. That evening, the can was gone. We looked around the house and could not find that can. My brother grabs his flashlight and goes into the basement. And there was the can, in the same spot he originally found it. He grabs it and takes it back upstairs. And this time, he places it on the mantel. The mantel is a faded whitewash color. When he puts the can down, it leaves a faint rust ring on the mantel. We eat dinner and talk about the strange things that have happened. We go to sleep that night and again are awakened by the chain dragging sound. We look around. Nothing. We go to sleep and again hear that chain sound. And this time, it's really close. We jump up, flip on the lights, and see that the can is no longer on the mantle. Just the rust ring. We freak out a little. We walk straight to the cellar, and the can is back in its original place. We go back upstairs, pack our gear, and check into a motel in town. The next day, we get our friend and explain to him what happened. He tells us that is the reason the house was vacated. It was haunted by the former slaves. He showed us an upstairs room that was used as a torture room. The reason his wife committed suicide is because she was tormented by the dead slaves. He tells us that a local school class took a field trip to the house and that all of the kids, the teacher, and the bus driver saw the ghost of the wife hanging from the balcony. Our friend says he heard weird things coming from the house all of the time. He said he would hear a sound like someone was in pain in a rhythm of about every two to three seconds. At first he thought it was a crow, but it would go on for about 60 seconds. Normally, a single crow will not do that. He believes it is the ghost of a slave being beaten. Accurate one, thank you for sharing the scare from our dark historical past. When we return from our break, we'll look at two more tales, featuring an odd request and a creepy creature that shouldn't be. But first, a word from our sponsor. What is the scariest story you've ever been told? Have you heard the one about 
the creature who wanders the woods near your home? A hotel with guests who never checked out. Maybe you've heard the one about the police deputy who had an encounter with things not of our world. The scariest stories we know aren't the ones that we make up to frighten one another. They're the ones that have a history to them. And in history, there's truth. The Midwest is full of these. My name is Sang Peng Duongdet. Whispers in the Night is a podcast that is devoted to exploring cases of the paranormal, the unexplained, and the things that terrify us most. Through fact, she appears to be what? Stabbed. Stabbed? Fiction. The door to the cellar flew open and the ghost appeared. And folklore. In the weeks after I took them, I found little footprints around the cabin. Whispers in the Night. Available wherever you tune in to podcasts. Welcome back to Scry. While we all love a good spook, and this tale certainly can make the hair on the back of your neck rise, the following story, submitted by Roger L., has to be one of, if not the most sentimental story that I've ever heard. But you didn't come to this session of spiritualism to hear me describe a tale. You came to hear Roger's tale. So let's get to it. It was early June in 1976, and I had just finished college, gotten my degree, and finished off my last couple of weeks at work before completely packing my stuff to move back home and trying to begin my adult life. I loaded up my beater of a station wagon that made Chevy Chase's family truckster look like a sports car and set out in the early morning hours for what would be a 10-hour drive to my parents' house. I had been driving for a few hours when I began to get the sensation that I was not alone in my trusty wagon. With all my college belongings packed, there was, of course, no room for anyone but me in the car. But I still felt this presence inside of my car. I couldn't shake the feeling, and it began to kind of freak me out a little. Here I am, driving down the highway, thinking that something was in the car with me, even though there was no room, and I hear a voice perfectly audible it says to me pray for your wife the voice seemed to belong to an older woman but it was firm and again it repeated pray for your wife shivers ran down my spine where was this voice coming from Who did it belong to? And again, it repeated, Pray for your wife. Here's the kicker. I did not have a wife. Hell, I didn't even have a girlfriend. So why in the hell 
was this voice from wherever it came from telling me to pray for someone that didn't exist. The voice continued and became more persistent. Pray for your wife. Pray for your wife. Pray for your wife. The voice commanded, growing more demanding and irate, as if it was becoming annoyed with my refusal of its demands. Of course I would refuse. I was too confused to understand what was happening or what it was asking of me. Even though I was confused and beginning to think that I was crazy, the voice kept repeating itself over and over, and it was really beginning to get on my last nerve. Finally, in exasperation, I said the hell with it, and I pulled onto the shoulder of the highway. I gave in to the voice's demands and clasped my hands together and offered up a generic prayer, which is odd because I'd never been religious or one for praying. I blurted out something basic, something along the lines of, God, look over my wife, whoever she is, amen. Like I said, basic, generic. I couldn't have gone into specifics if I wanted to, because I didn't have specifics. As soon as I said amen, however, the voice was silent, and I felt alone in my car. That presence that I had felt was gone. Fast forward six years, and I had met this beautiful woman. We had been dating for a couple of months when she invited me to dinner at her parents' house. It would be the first time that I met her parents, and everything went fine. Her parents and I got along great, and the conversation between us flowed very naturally. Then her mother broke out a photo album, much to the embarrassment of my girlfriend, and began to show various photographs of my girlfriend over the years. I saw baby pictures, prom pictures, and everything in between. One photograph caught my eye, as it was loose in the album and not secured like the others. It was of a car that had been smashed six ways to Sunday. I asked about the photograph, and her mother told me that it had been their car. At the time that the photograph was taken, my girlfriend had been driving to work one morning when her car had been T-boned by a drunk driver who ran through an intersection. My girlfriend's car had been pushed into a utility pole and she had been trapped inside. She was eventually cut free and taken to the hospital where she barely clung to life. And having been knocked unconscious in the wreck, she had no memory of the event. Just getting ready for work one morning, then fading in and out of the hospital. To everyone's surprise, she made a full recovery and survived the ordeal. I asked her mother when this had happened, and she told me that she didn't remember the exact date, but it would have been in early June, 1976. I would bet dollars to donuts that this wreck happened 
the same exact time that the presence in my car had been felt and commanded me to pray for my wife. I would believe this even further when in the summer my girlfriend would become my wife. It wasn't until a few years into our marriage that I told her the story about the voice, which made her cry joyfully, taking it as a sign that we were destined for each other. I couldn't agree more. Roger, you son of a bitch. You sure made things dusty in here, affected all of our allergies, and made the rest of us look bad to our significant others. But in all honesty, that is a beautiful story that tugs at the heartstrings after getting past the eeriness of an invisible, impossible entity speaking to you about things that you couldn't possibly have known. That was a fantastic tale that was fantastically told, and we thank you for sharing your encounter. In our final experience of the episode, Maximum Overdrive tells us of a family trek into the woods where his son encounters something or someone that shouldn't be. This happened maybe four years ago. I went with the family to this place called the Great Bay National Wildlife Refuge, which I guess is in Newington, New Hampshire, just to have a look around. I went in the winter, maybe around January or so. There's a raised boardwalk that goes through the woods. So I went there with my wife and my four-ish-year-old son and our baby. When we got there, we discovered that apparently the government doesn't have enough money to shovel off the boardwalk in the winter. But we were already there, so we wanted to have a look around. The boardwalk was covered with at least six inches of snow. There was probably six to eight inches of snow on the ground to either side of the boardwalk. Most of the trees had kind of a little well around them where the snow was less deep. And this is from the branches keeping the snow from falling straight down there, I suppose. Some of the trees had a bit of bare ground right around the trunks. After about two minutes, we also discovered that this wildlife refuge is literally at the end of an airport runway. I observed that it must be a refuge for deaf animals. But again, we were there, so we wanted to have a look around. This raised boardwalk zigzags through the woods a little bit, so there are some spots where you can't see other parts of the boardwalk due to intervening trees. So my wife was behind me with the baby, and my son was running off ahead. At one point, I stopped to wait for my wife to catch up, and my son got out of sight for a minute up ahead. I was calling for him, 
and he came back. He said that up ahead, he had met a man with a basket of candy around his neck. He told my son to reach in and take some. He said he told the man he wasn't allowed to do that, and he had to check with his parents. So here I am, running my hand through my hair, thinking, you can't even go for a nice family walk without a goddamn pedophile turning up nowadays. So I had him come along and show me this guy. When we went along this boardwalk, we came to a certain spot. My son was telling me this is where he saw the guy, but the way he was pointing was as if he was indicating someone very small. He was pointing down from this raised boardwalk as if the person was lower than he was. So he was four years old, plus the height of the boardwalks may be 12 to 18 inches above the ground. So he seemed like he must be indicating someone maybe three or four feet tall at the absolute most. He was pointing into one of these kind of wells around a tree trunk. There was no sign of any footprints or anything that I could see. So I went all the way up the end of the path and back and couldn't find anything. I was supposing that if there was anyone around, they must have run off towards the airport. I didn't just discount this story because we actually had never talked to him about taking candy from strangers or anything, so I didn't think it would be likely to form the basis of a made-up story for him. So we got back in the car, and I was asking him to more fully describe this guy. He was saying that he had black hair. Then, he was kind of struggling to describe his color. He was saying his skin was like metal, like the color of a quarter. He seemed like he was searching for the color gray and just couldn't quite come up with that word. So my wife and I looked at each other, like, oh, he must be fooling. But I kept thinking about that as time went by, because it just didn't seem like something that he would make up. So a few months later, just for fun, I typed his description into Google just to see what would come up. I put in something like three foot tall, black hair, gray skin, and maybe in the woods or something. And one of the things that came up was something called a puckwudgie. It said that they were some kind of little people that used to be friendly with the Indians around this way. But subsequently, they had some kind of falling out and the puckwudgies became kind of the enemies of the Indians and would do bad things to them if given the opportunity. More recently, I have read that they are supposedly still friendly with the Anishinaabe further west of here. So I was reading some article about them, and it said they were very short with black hair and gray skin. 
I was like, holy shit. Oh, fuck. So I googled some pictures, and I mixed them with some other stuff, and showed them to my son without saying anything. He immediately pointed to one of the Puckwudgie drawings and said, that's the guy I saw. So of course, I have never gone within a mile of that place since. Maximum Overdrive, that is a fascinating tale, and I have always been intrigued by these tales of the little folk that pop up all over the world. Whether it be leprechauns and elves, puckwudgies, or other types of creatures long rumored to hide out of the sight of us mere mortals. And with that, it is time to end this episode of Eerie Encounters and close the gate once again, shutting off the realms of shadows with that of the reality of man. If you have an encounter that you would like to share, you can submit it at scrypod.com, scrypodcast at gmail.com, or leave us a message at 573-203-8668. We're looking forward to your submissions and thank you for helping us to share the scare. Our logo design appears courtesy of Iran Horrors. Check out more of his work at DeviantArt. And speaking of great stuff to check out, I'd like to recommend you check out Whispers in the Night as well. This podcast features some great spooky tales that have an emphasis on the American Midwest a place that I happen to call home. If you have enjoyed this podcast, then please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever service you prefer. But until then, we must once again close the gate and banish all things dark. And as always, say goodbye. This is scry.